You know, today I want to talk to you about something I think is very important. And um, I want to talk to you about the comeback. We've all heard about the comeback. Somebody who messed up or made a mistake, maybe faced some type of trial or injury, but they were able to come back from that. They were able to rise above the challenge of the adversity they were able to face circumstances, amen, that perhaps were of their own making. How many of you have ever had a problem that you created? Well, it's quiet in here. Come on now, help me preach this morning. Anybody know what I'm talking about? How many of you have ever had a problem and you created the problem? Amen. I don't know about you, but I, when I, and I don't fool around with little headaches. You know, if I'm going to get if I'm going to get myself in trouble, it's big trouble with a capital T. And you know, that's kind of uh that's kind of what I want to talk to you today. I want to talk about somebody that kind of created their own problem and created their own situation and I'm hoping today that somebody will be able to identify with this and not only identify with how that they created a problem, but how that they were able to make a comeback. And how that they were able to rise above that problem and accomplish what God had put them there to do. How have you thank God that God's grace is new every morning? Don't ever underestimate what it means to be a worshiper. Don't ever underestimate what it means to be a praiser. There are people in this room, praising is not your style. It's not your thing. You're happy when the music's over with and you can sit back down comfortably and relax and listen and learn something. Maybe, Maybe that's what's in your spirit today, to come here and to learn something and to grow. There's nothing wrong with that. But remember, God has special grace for worshipers. God shows special grace to worshipers. You know, when Apostle Garfield Curlin was here a couple of years ago, he preached and he talked about how that when Saul was anointed, Saul was anointed from a bowl. And in scripture, the bowl always represents judgment. Have you know that In the book of Revelation, it records seven bold judgments that will be poured out upon this earth. Have you know that? The bowl represents judgment. Saul was given to the people because he was what they wanted. And the purpose of sending a Saul was to show people that we don't know what we really want and we don't know what we really need. Saul was a man who was handsome and he stood a head taller than everybody else. I already don't like him. I'll never forget when my son Thomas was born and everyone talked about how long his legs were and how big his feet were. And boy, he's going to be tall. And I remember my father was standing right there and says, don't get too excited about it. He's going to settle in at five, nine and a half like every other McFadden male since the beginning of time. 
course, my wife spoke up and said, there's height on my side of the family. So don't, don't, don't underestimate that Underwood side. Every time we think the McFadden's the dominant side, I see my wife and my son. And so he's got a shot at six foot. I don't know, but I read something one time that I've always suspected. I've always believed it was a real possibility. I always felt that I was the benefactor of its prejudicial view. And that is that the taller you are, the more likely you are to be promoted on your job. Have you ever read that statistic? And all the tall people here said, I deserved it. And all the short people said, no, you don't. I don't know. People just naturally want to look up to leadership. That's their nature. And so God gave them a, God gave them a six foot plus king who everybody could look up to him. Everyone could salute you, could pick him out in a crowd. He had that royal look about him, but God anointed him with a bowl. And I want you to think about this. One day he feared the people and he took sacrifices that were supposed to be slaughtered and he offered them as offerings to God. And that sin brought the judgment of God upon him and God took the kingdom and God took his life. Now think about that. Really not that big a deal, was it? I mean, I've heard a lot of sermons on it, don't fear the people, whatever. But I'm going to tell you, if God killed every preacher who ever feared the people, wouldn't be very many preachers. I mean, I'm about half scared of some of you this morning. And so if God killed every preacher who ever feared the people, there wouldn't be very many preachers. But I want you to compare that to David's sin. David was anointed with a ram's horn. And have you know the ram's horn symbolizes two things. It symbolizes grace and it symbolizes victory. You say, why? Because when, when it was about time to plunge that knife into his son, Abraham looked around. The angel of the Lord stayed his hand. And there was a ram caught by the horn in the thicket. And God provided himself a sacrifice. And have you know on that day, we all know it was prophetic of the fact that God didn't want Abraham's son. God was going to send his only son. Have you know that? And that ram was a symbol of the fact that God would provide himself a sacrifice. That all our sacrifices would fall short, but God would provide it for himself. The ram's horn also symbolizes victory. Amen. It symbolizes victory. Not only victory, but have you know victory through praise. The ram's horn was the original trumpet. And God likes trumpets. Did you know that? God loves trumpets. He loves the sound of the trumpet, the sound of the shofar. And so it was symbolic of victory and symbolic of praise. And so David was anointed by grace. But have you know what made David unique is David was a worshiper. David worshiped God. Amen. He gave glory to God. And so if we look at the sins of David, 
What did David do? David lusted. He committed adultery. Then he murdered the woman's husband. Now, compare that to poor Saul over here, who all he did was fear a mobbing crowd of people who every one of them should have obeyed God. They knew the rule too. But they decided, what a waste. Why kill these animals when we can offer them as a sacrifice and then we don't have to sacrifice our own? I mean, they just got a little selfish, am I right? And they disobeyed God. But you see, the one who was anointed by the bowl was brought to judgment. And the one that was anointed by the ram's horn, despite the fact he was an adulterer and a murderer, God gave him grace. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to be a worshiper. <laughs> Come on, have you know what I'm talking I want to be a worshiper. I said, I want to be a worshiper. I want the grace that God gives to worshipers. There's just something about the song of the worshiper. Amen. There's something about the time that David invested on that harp, praising God and writing psalms of praise, that when it came time to judge David, God said, yeah, I'm going to judge you, but I'm not going to judge you like I did Saul. It's not going to be the same. And so, Josh, I want you to read my text from 2 Samuel, if you will. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting with verse 7, reading from the Amplified Version. and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you that much again. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord, doing evil in his sight? You have slain Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. You have murdered him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have not only despised my command, but... You have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. And so David hears the words of the prophet, and he realizes that he's the one that the prophet's been talking about. Because he tells them this beautiful parable about the man who had many sheep, but when a guest came, he wouldn't offer his sheep. He went and he took another man's sheep, his only sheep. And he offered, and David said, who is this guy? If we find him, we're going to kill him. We're going to hang him from the highest tree. And the prophet says, you're the man. Because you have many wives and you took the wife of a man who only had one wife. And you've killed that man. And God said, because of that, this is what's going to happen to you. And I'm just going to tell you something. I heard this just the other day. There are those who believe that because they are saved, there is no consequence to sin. Can I talk about that for just a second? Amen. There are still consequences to sin. Be not deceived whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. 
And uh, these people who once they're saved, they're always saved. And all their sins, past, present, and future, they're all gone. Then why do they have trouble in their life? <clears throat> I said, why do they have trouble in their life? I mean, doesn't, isn't, isn't, uh, aren't problems a result of sin? If sin has been completely removed past, present, and future and has no power over their life anymore, shouldn't that manifest in the natural just as much as it would in the spiritual? <clears throat> but how have you ever noticed that they have problems too? Amen. I said they have problems too. Now, if we lived perfect from the moment that we got saved and we never made a mistake, would we or would we not be just like Jesus? Come on, Pastor. But it's not going to go that way, is it? We're going to mess up. That's right. And when we mess up, there are real consequences. See, if you're a Christian and you sleep around, you're still going to pick up some kind of disease. Right. You still may find an unplanned pregnancy. There are still consequences to your actions. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. This is God's chosen man. This is God's anointed man. Have you, who could argue that David was God's choice? Come on. But when he messed up, God said there's going to be consequences. <clears throat> now, I realize there's grace and there's mercy, and that's what this message is about. But I'm going to tell you right now, the grace and the mercy is on the other side of repentance and humility. And until we are humble and until we repent... We are going to remain under the judgment of that sin. I don't know about you, but I keep coming back to the will of grace. Come on, touch somebody if you're thankful for the grace of God. <coughs> How many of you have repented this week? Come on, let me see some hands. I need some examples of people who are going to be honest. Take the mask off. You're at TLC. We don't do pompous religious church. We do real church. Come on, touch somebody. Say, you in real church today. It's a real church. Now, I'm going to ask you, how many of you repented this week? Praise the Lord. Have you needed to repent this week? Let me ask it like that. <clears throat> okay, that's got a, even a few more hands up. Praise the Lord. Maybe we will have an altar call this morning. We don't have altar call. Listen, we're not perfect people. We're going to blow it. I'm just going to tell you that right now. I know you think that you're on your way to the pattern of perfection, but you're going to blow it. You're going to lose your temper. You know, over the years, I've read so many books about being a good husband, books about communication. I probably know more about it than, than most people do. I know more about it than I want to know sometimes because what you know, you're responsible for. And I'm without excuse. You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, sometimes the word's coming out of my mouth and I know, oh, that's, that one's going to sting her. That's a... That's one of those pebble brick things. You know, I was throwing pebbles, but she's going to hear bricks. And, and I'm conscious of the fact that it's a brick. So now I'm going to have to stand before God for brick throwing. It's not easy. <clears throat> but no matter how much we think we have arrived, 
Have you know there are always going to be those sins of omission. Things that we knew to do that were good and we didn't do. What about the sin of giving good when it's not our best? Help us, Pastor. Talk about it. What about whatsoever is not of faith is sin? What about all the doubt we speak out of our mouth? Come on. Have you know what I'm talking about? Yes, sir. Some people sit around, they criticize, and everything's bad. Everything's, I mean, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And so we're always going to be in the same struggle. Some might still be struggling. I know some of you might still be struggling with, <coughs> with cursing or swearing. Some are struggling with addictions. Some of you are struggling today and with depression with fear. Some might be struggling with lust. Some might be struggling with lying. Man, lying's tough. It's human nature to lie. You don't have to teach a child to lie. You have to teach a child to tell the truth. I mean, most kids, they come out of the room, they got cookies all over their mouth standing there saying, was you in the cookie jar? And you got to teach them, no, that's a lie. We don't lie. You can't do that. You lying because they don't know they got cookies all over their mouth. Help us. I'll never forget my sister, Cheryl. We were over her house when her boys were young, and she was telling us the story about how just that week she had caught Mikey, who's older, Teaching Timmy, who could barely talk, how to say, I did it. She was talking about how it seemed like everything had happened for a week. Timmy would go, I did it. And he was getting in trouble a lot. She's starting to worry about Timmy. No, Mikey taught him to say, am I telling the truth? Sure. I did it. You got to watch that Mikey. I mean, he's class comedian. I told someone the other day, you understand the difference between a class comedian and a, and a class clown. The class clown is the guy that streaks across the football field. The class comedian is the guy that talked him into it. <laughs> and that's their nature. And so we're all battling our nature. And I realize, you know, that many of you are here today and there are things that, that, that we've done. We, you know, sometimes in life, there just aren't any take backs. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, when we were kids, you know, we could all like do it over, you know, do over. You know, well, okay, he hasn't used his do over, so he gets a do over. You know, and, and, and the more we begin to grow up, the more mature, mature we become, the more we realize they just don't, there ain't too many do overs out there, are there? You know, the IRS don't like do overs. Your boss, when you cost the company $20,000, doesn't want to give you a do-over. You know what I'm saying? When you wreck your car, the insurance company, you paid them all those premiums, and they still don't want to give you a do-over. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they'll fix your car, but then they raise your rates. And it just seems that the more we begin to grow, the more we begin to realize there are consequences for our actions and the word of God talks about how that we have sown the wind and will reap the whirlwind. 
And what he's talking about is those who get into a pattern of sowing certain things. Because if you sow enough of the wrong things, you not only begin to affect your harvest, you begin to affect the weather that comes into your life. I'm preaching right there. I don't know where all these storms and trials are coming from. Well, what are you investing in? Praise the Lord. What are you investing in and what are you sowing? Amen. If we sow the wrong thing long enough, we begin to affect the culture and the culture determines the climate. (coughs) Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but I'll give you a good example. When we're raising our children, it's easy to compromise. We've got a lot of blended families in our church. We've got a lot of parents who, uh, uh, you know, they're, they, they have stepchildren and they have foster children and they have, you know, di- different blended families that, that uh, 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 you know, that's the unique circumstances of, of today. A lot of times we've got grandmothers that are taking the role of the mother because the daughter's too immature and just all kinds of different situations that we just call today as a generic term and hope that it's not offensive to anyone, a blended family. You know, a family that maybe was torn apart and then it mixed together and now it's got a new family and now everybody's trying to make this work and they're, they're trying to communicate with one another. And oftentimes when families are blended, it's difficult for the parents to take on the appropriate roles because these kids are like, well, you know, I've already got a mom and dad over here my dad's got this way of doing it. Now I live here at this house and I've got a stepdad, and, but he's a stepdad. And what is a stepdad? And how does that work? You know what I'm talking about? And how does the mom not step in from time to time and say to the stepdad, well, you're not really his dad and I'll take care of this. And they end up outside of the roles, the biblical roles that God has set in the home. And dysfunction begins to come into the home. And the dysfunction starts, first of all, let me just say this. When you are married and then divorced and you remarry and there are children in that home, as long as you are married to that man, he's the father. Well, it's quiet in here, but you should help me preach right now. He is the father and she is the mother. Amen. And you have to... Make adjustments in your relationship to deal with that. And that adjustment does not be for the mom to try to be both mom and dad to her natural born kids, but for her to be the best mom she could be and let that stepdad be the best dad that he can be. Because if he was good enough for you to marry, he better be good enough to raise your kids. Amen. But what happens? Sin begins to creep in. You see what I'm saying? Excuses are made. Well, they're going to go back and live with their father. Their father is more wicked. It's a worse choice, but they could possibly do that. Well, does that mean we adjust the standard at our house because of what the child might do? Who's in charge? The child. What child has ever led themselves into victory? What child has ever led themselves into appropriate adulthood? Have you know that? They have to be taught. (coughs) Timmy, here's how you do it. I did it. (laughs) That's what children do. (coughs) 
when my brother Ron was first put in charge, the first time he got to babysit, he was like a czar, wasn't he, Cheryl? Man, he just walked around. He was just ordering us around. Do this or do that. I don't have to listen to you. Mom and dad put me in charge. Yeah, but that don't mean I have to clean your room. <coughs> well, I'm going to tell mom and dad you weren't listening and you're going to get a whooping when they get home. Guess who was cleaning Ron's room? <coughs> Am I right? An abuse of power. Children have to be directed. They have to be guided. But when we change the atmosphere in the home, and as soon as the relationship with the parents get out of order, the kids begin to get out of order. <coughs> and all of a sudden, the culture in the home begins to change. Standards begin to change. All of a sudden, kids are watching things. We'd never let them watch. There's just no way. But, well, we're not going to fight over this. <coughs> it's not worth it to stand over this. Well, I, you know, I decided a long time ago, everything's worth it with my kids. I mean, I don't care if it's how hard they close the refrigerator door. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk this, about the spirit and the attitude in which they manifested when they closed the door on my refrigerator. That's not our refrigerator. You never made a payment on that refrigerator. That is my refrigerator. As I understand the KRS code of Kentucky law, you cannot enter into a contract of any kind until you reach the age of 18. <clears throat> so I don't care if you bought it with your money at the mall. I don't care if you bought it at the grocery store with the money that you made cutting the neighbor's grass with our lawnmower. I don't care. Why? Because you don't have the right to enter into a contract that is all overseen by me. Because guess what? When you're cutting that grass, if you knock out that neighbor's window, they're going to come talk to me. Am I right? <clears throat> and so there ain't this mind, there ain't any of that. All of that stuff is important enough. But that's the culture in your home. You're deciding the culture in your home. What's important enough? What's not important? What we're going to talk about? What we're not going to talk about? What are the laws of privacy? And when the home begins to get out of order, then all of a sudden, in the absence of order, in the sowing of disrespect towards the man of the house, the mother of the house, amen, all of a sudden, all this seed begins to get sown. And if we sow that seed long enough, it begins to affect the weather in our life. And see, this is what God is saying to David. Listen, you think your sin is your sin, but it's going to affect you. It's going to affect your family. It's going to affect your children and your children's children. Isn't that what it said, brother? That's what the word of God said. It said it's going to affect you, but it's not, the sword is not going to depart from your family. Come on. That's what it says. Let me tell you something. If you don't live right for any other reason, live right because your family is counting on it. Come on, man. Because your blessing is wrapped up together. When are we going to realize, when are we going to realize that if we're family, we're in this together? Hallelujah. If you're married, you're in it together. Right. Well, I'm going to do my thing and he's going to do his thing and I've got my checkbook and he's got his checkbook and I've got my bills that I pay and he's got his bills that he, get, that he pays. You know what you need to do? You need to get saved. 
Because when you get saved, your wallet gets saved. When you get saved, your checkbook gets saved. When you get saved, God will make you one in the spirit. How do you understand what I'm talking about? Where you're working together, not working against each other. I got a fund over here. She don't know anything about this money. This is my mad money. I just keep it tucked away. What are you hiding it from? The Bible says you're hiding it from yourself. Oh, it's quiet. <laughs> oh, I feel like I'm there now. Holy Ghost, help me because I need to preach right here for just a little while. And we just want to do, we want to be divided. We got to come together as God's people. We need to realize we're in this together. And guess what? Their sin affects me. Their disobedience affects me. And if it affects me, then it's going to affect my children. And in the wicked world that we live in, where children are exposed to sin and degradation, every day they are attacked. I said attacked by the pushers and the, and the pimps and the players. Pressed. Asking questions their immature mind is not ready to answer. Their immature body is not ready to participate in. Hey man, they are not socially and, and, and uh, intellectually and emotionally ready for things. And they're constantly being pressured by it every day. And when they come into your house, they should be entering into a fortress that is protected. That I don't have to worry about what they find under the bed or hid away in daddy's drawer. Help me preach, Holy Ghost. Help me preach. God, give me people that want to hear the truth. I'm talking about they shouldn't have to worry about that. They shouldn't have to worry about the language they hear from their parents. Reminds me of this story, you know, the Christmas story. It's a wonderful little movie, The Red Rider BB Gun. I can so identify with that. I mean, that, 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 it just, it, every time I watch that movie around Christmas time, it's a beautiful movie. But I thought about the fact that the little boy got caught swearing. Have you remember? He said the mother of all swear words. And when they asked him where he heard it, he knew he couldn't tell him that he'd heard his dad cuss and swear every time he fought with the furnace. He knew he couldn't answer that. You know, that's really where he heard it, though, wasn't it? Our kids today don't need to hear that kind of garbage coming out of our mouths. I want to talk to these parents who sow with their words, threatening words. Hey Amen. What point does it make to threaten a child? I'm serious. What point? Do, I hear people threatening their children all the time. I'm going to kill you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this to you. I'm going to do that to you. I don't promise my kids anything that I won't do. And then when they don't do what I told them to do, I do what I said. But if you promise to kill your child, you ain't going to kill your child. I hope you're not going to kill your child. Hey Amen. If, you, if, you, if you're thinking about killing your child, you really need to get sanctified. Amen. But don't threaten your children. Promise your children. Let your word be your bond. I, you don't have to raise your voice at your children. Just do what you say all the time. Come on, I don't have to holler at my kids. I just tell them, did you hear me? 
Did you hear what I said? Have I ever lied to you before? Have I ever lied to you? No, then okay. I'm just making, I wouldn't want it to be because you didn't hear me. That's what I was concerned about because you was all, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't positive. I wanted to make sure that you heard what I said because you know I'm about to do what I said. And it's amazing how them kids can move. I mean, I've seen them stop crying, stop fit throwing in the middle of the store. Because they know I will do what I said I'm going to do. That's all you have to do with kids is be the person who does what they said. Every single time. There is no break. There is no compromise. There are no day off. You can't take a day off. You're a liar when you tell your kids I'm going to do it. And they've done the same thing three times and you ain't done nothing. You're a liar. And all liars are going to burn in hell and raise bratty kids. Come on. <laughs> Preach it. Preach our man of God. Man, there's a hole in there somewhere. Praise God. <laughs> Brother, read, read, read 2 Samuel 16, verse 5 for me. When Listen King, to the word of God. When King David came to Bahurim... <laughs> A man of the family of, of the house of Saul, Shimei, son of Jerah, came out and cursed continually as he came. And he cast stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you base fellow. The Lord has avenged upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hands of Absalom, your son. Behold, the calamity is upon you because you are a bloody man. Then said David's nephew, Abishai, son of Zerui, to the king, Why should this dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. The king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zerui? Zerui, rather. If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David... Who then shall ask, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who was born to me seeks my life. With how much more reason now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has bidden him to do it. It may be that the Lord will look on the iniquity done me and will recompense me with good for his cursing this day. So David and his men went by the road, and Shimei went along on the hillside opposite David and cursed as he went and threw stones and dusted him. Now, I want you to hear the difference between David talking to Nathan and the David that's going down the road. Nathan comes in talking about a man who stole this sheep, this precious sheep. From the man who only had one. And David acts like he don't even know who he's talking about. David is completely unaware of his sin. He is not convicted of his sin. He's not even aware of his sin. He's still in denial. Have you know what I'm talking about when I talk about denial? Come on. Come on. He's still making excuses. 
You know, when we sin, what do we do? We don't, we, we don't start out getting all convicted about it. No, we still, we still high over our sin, our transgression. We got, we got away with it. Nobody, nobody knows about it. Everything is okay. It's going to be fine. I mean, he's just still, he's still thinking, well, you know, it really, it's Bathsheba's fault. You really have to watch where you bathe. And she should have, uh, she should have been more careful and, you know, just still in that mindset of making excuses for his sin. And when the prophet speaks, he doesn't even see himself as the sinner. But here, a man begins to come out and begins to curse David right while his royal entourage is going down the street. And of course, some of his entourage starts to speak up and says, who is this dog that you're even going to let him live? Doesn't he know who he's talking to? You're the king. And what did David say? Listen to this. What did David say? Maybe the Lord sent him here to do that. Come on, man of God. Uh. Man, what a heart change. How many you can see that? Maybe the Lord sent him here to do this. Maybe, maybe God's going to bless me as a result of him coming out and cursing me. Maybe, maybe something there is going to be is going to reveal to me what I need to do to get the blessing of God back in my life because I don't know how to get it but I'm willing to listen to anybody that'll get me back to where I want to be and I'm going to tell you right now that's the key when we begin to fall when we begin to fail when we make a mistake hey amen it's the ability to humble oneself are you listening to me? I don't know how many times I've had people sin and then run away from the church screaming, well, everybody's talking about me. And, and I'll tell you right now, if they was really Christians, uh, well, then they would, they would never say anything about it. But everybody at church, they're just a bunch of gossips. I'm so glad David had the right spirit. David said, just leave him alone. That's on me. That's on me. I know what I deserve. Let me tell you something. When you sin and you fail and you fall before God, you got one position. Hit that altar face first and humble yourself before God. And if you're humble, God will exalt you. If you're humble, the people of God will surround you. Amen. I said they'll surround you. But sometimes there ain't been no repentance. Sometimes there, ain't, there hasn't been any humility. I can't tell you how many times people, if you're pointing your finger at the church, blaming the church for your problems, you ain't repented yet, baby. The church didn't make you a sinner. The church didn't cause you to stumble and fall. When we all wake up and realize it was our decision, wasn't it? It was our mistake. And listen, if you'll take ownership of it, then you can give it to God and be released from it. But if you're denying it, it will stick to you till the day that you die. Have you know what I'm talking about? There's grace for the humble, the Bible says. There's grace for the worshiper. Let me tell you, you can't worship without a broken heart. He said, a broken and a contrite spirit I'll never cast away. You want to get close to God, you've got to be broken. I said, if you want to get close to God, you've got to be broken. If you want to know him, you've got to know his suffering. You've got to know what he went through. You've got to know his sorrow. You've got to know his pain. 
I'm here to tell you, humility is the key. And yet, humility is something that's so hard when you preach about it. It's hard. Why? Because pride is the opposite of humility. And pride has scales. Pride knows everything. Pride is hard. But pride is lonely. Because pride says, I don't need anybody. But humility says... I don't even know if I can pull myself out of this. God, I need your help. Humility leans on its brother. It leans on its sister. It says, I need you. I need you to watch me. I need you to walk with me. I need you, I need you to be my partner. What's amazing is how the world has adopted the biblical system. When you go in and tell them you're an alcoholic, what are they going to do? They're going to sign you a partner. And if you get weak, you call on that person. That's a biblical concept. That's what the church is supposed to be like. When we fall, we don't shun the sinner. The Bible says our love goes and covers their sin by confronting it and saying, listen, you're better than this. And you don't have to live this way. And if they'll be humble and they'll lean on you, you can walk out of that valley with them. I can tell you there are going to be those that, 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 that come storming through heaven's gate running Amen. Nobody touched them. Nobody clanged to them. Nobody held to them. They just ran. I mean, when <clears throat> when others failed, they ran on. When 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 circumstances were hard, they ran on. And when they cross those pearly gates and that finish line, they're going to find it a very lonely day. For the celebration will be for those who struggle across that line with a brother in one hand sister in another hand and carry them through amen we've all heard the we've all heard the the um, the poem about the footprints and the only thing that i don't really like about that poem is that we fail to see that when jesus picks us up and carries us it's usually not in his bodily form it's usually a brother or a sister who was being Jesus that day when they picked me up and carried me through. It's usually, yeah, it was Jesus. It was his body. It was his church. It was my brothers and my sisters. It was my apostle. Amen. That when I was going through a hard trial and just felt like giving up and for the first time and all those years of pastoring had written out my resignation. But when I called him on the phone, I said, Brother, I picked up on your burden when I was down there. And God told me to fast 40 days just for you. You need to know every day of this trial that I'm with you and that I'm praying for you. God is going to bring you out. That's what we need, my friend. You can't find that with pride. Pride builds walls. Pride said, I can do it myself. We'd be surprised the blessings that we rob ourselves if we could just humble ourselves. Just humble ourselves. And listen, that humility, it's not just evidenced in times of need. Let me tell you, that humility is there every Sunday when we worship. That humility is there every time we come into the house of God. 
Amen. It's there when we lift up our hands and we prefer God to ourselves. And we don't sing about getting my blessing, getting my miracle. Amen. But we say, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Praise the Lord. Amen. When we declare that, let me tell you something. God is a God of restoration. I want you to read one more passage. Josh, in, in Psalm 89 and verse 20. Amen. Listen to this. Listen to this passage as we get ready to close.